communism. I took a beat on purpose because I'm guessing a lot of you had some sort of reaction to that word. If you were raised here in the United States, I'm guessing that reaction wasn't positive. But why though? Did you grow up during the Cold War? And even though you know a whole bunch of propaganda was poured into our society at that time, are those thoughts just hard to shake? Do you look at a tennis star like Peng Shui, who disappeared from sight after accusing an official of sexual assault, and now that she's reappeared, she's walking it back, and you think, yep, that's communism in China for you. Or do you hear the word communism and think that means that if you earn money, you just can't keep it because you have to give it to those who simply don't work as hard as you. Whatever your thoughts are regarding communism, if it triggered you, that's probably the reason why only a handful of communists have successfully run and won office here in this country. But despite the negative connotation and the obvious uphill battle, there is a military vet here in Long Beach who is running for city council on the communist ticket for District 1. His name is Steven Estrada, and we're going to meet him right now. Watch this. You're listening to The Word on Long Beach. And now, Jackie Ray. Welcome back to The Word on Long Beach. I'm Jackie Ray, and I have to tell you, I am really excited about today's interview. When I first booked this interview, I had no idea what to expect, especially after seeing his Twitter, where he retweeted a few things that I I gotta admit gave me some pause, especially since he didn't offer any perspective of his own. He just retweeted some names like Stalin, Mao, with no context. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to get. But I have to say, the first thing that I noticed when he pulled into our garage here at the Long Beach Post was my own preconceived notions about what this would be like. I don't know what kind of thought I had in my head about meeting a communist. Did I think he was going to be menacing in some way? Did I think he was going to be aggressive in some way? Not entirely sure, but instantly we just had a really normal conversation. He pulled in, he parked, his gas tank just kept popping open. We laughed about how somebody probably popped it open. It was just a very normal conversation between two people who met for the very first time. I had to keep it professional, but inside I was cracking up because I really did have to take note about, I have never met this man. I've also never met a communist in person. And somehow I just had some sort of expectations, but I still had to know how the former army vet became a communist. So take a listen. Let's let's just talk about you first. So okay. you're a Long Beach native? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, I, I guess it depends on how you define native. But okay. I moved here in the last three years specifically okay. for school. Um, I was uh, going to Cal State Long Beach mm-hmm. and I actually moved here from Riverside. So I'm, I'm semi semi Sem- Semi, yeah. 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 And what did you study at Cal State Long Beach? Uh, my major was in sociology. So okay. I was really into just kind of how society works, what are the different dynamics of people and, you know, city and uh, I guess larger global society as well. Did you always know you wanted to pursue a career in politics? You know, I don't really, I don't really like to characterize uh, as me pursuing a career more Mm -hmm. so. I think uh, serving um, as a city council member or really any political position is more about serving the community. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really think about it in terms of a career and more of kind of a 
service to to the people that I live with, my neighbors, and, and my overall community. Okay. So let's go back in time. Brothers, sisters, mom, dad, what was your family dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I had a huge, huge family, a lot of brothers and sisters. Okay. Uh, I was the oldest of seven. Okay. Um, and, you know, I was uh, raised for large portions of my life by a single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was a really, I guess, maturing experience for me. I had to learn really quickly about you know, how to become the man of the household, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my father ser- served a, a stint in federal prison, uh, and as did my mother. And there were times where I had to live with my grandmother. And so, you know, I, I feel like I know firsthand the experience of, of many people who look like me. And, 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 you know, often it wasn't fun. It wasn't a great experience for, mm-hmm. you know, for our people. Um, and, you know, when it comes to mass incarceration, when it comes to poverty, that was really kind of what defined my life growing up. And this is really what led me to the direction I'm in now, um, advocating for my community, advocating for, for wealth, um, and, and advocating for political democracy. So you said both your mom and dad spent time in, in federal prison. Yes. What, how old were you when that happened? So my dad, um, you know, I don't know my dad that well, so he's been in and out of prison on, on various charges, um, but I can't say I know him that well. Uh, and you know how old I was, I'm really not sure. I just know that he was in there. Uh, my mom, I was in, I, I guess, fifth grade, sixth grade. I'm not sure exactly what age, mm-hmm. eleven or twelve or so. Um, and that you know during that time, I lived with my grandmother, and um, you know that that was also kind of a very, um, that was a big milestone for me, just in terms of you know connecting back with you know my culture, Mexican culture, and learning more of the language that I wasn't really privy to before. And just kind of get a new perspective on things as a child. So let's talk about that because mm-hmm. I know for me, my I go by Jackie, but my mm-hmm. name is Jacqueline. And when yeah. I got older, you know, all of my cousins and stuff, they have really cool names. Mm-hmm. I asked my mom, I'm like, why am I named Jacqueline? <laughs> and she told me, she says, well, because when you got older and you put your name on a resume, I didn't want people to automatically know you were black. Um, so when mm-hmm. you said you had to kind of go back and learn your culture yeah. and learn Spanish and stuff, do you feel like sometimes in America specifically, our families kind of try to dial back our culture a little mm-hmm. bit so we can assimilate? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why my name is Steven. You know, right. It's not the most Hispanic <laughs> name in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely pressure on you to, um, to leave those 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 aspects of who you are behind mm-hmm. and to assimilate into this culture where you know some of the things that we're proud of um, you know are are not really valued here in the society. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's an experience that I think many of many you know diaspora communities or people coming in have to face, and that's unfortunate. I think America should be a, a place where we value each other's you know individuality, individual cultures, and it can be a place where we can all come into communion with each other. Right. So you ended up going to the military. I did. How old were you when you went into the military? Oh, I was a baby. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, 19 years old. Oh, okay, so you and, went really young. Yeah, so it was a, you know it was an experience. Well, I mean, I I, I w- actually went to San Diego State. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I was originally going, and you know, like many people, I wasn't able to afford living on the dorms, and uh, you know, I couldn't afford food. I couldn't afford to wash my clothes. Uh, just another experience, I think, of of the system that we have, and. Um, I, I was packing up my stuff. I walked out the door and, you know, the army recruiter was right outside waiting for me. They had a table set up. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, at that time, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, it was like that. It was I, I wasn't sure where I was going. And so um, the army offered me a career, offered me an, a, you know, new experiences. And I signed up. And how many years? 
I served four. You served four. Yeah, I got out as a, a sergeant. Um, I served most of my time in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Okay. And um, yeah. So when you retired from the military, do you retire mm-hmm. after four years? You don't retire. You, no. you, you retire yeah. after like 20. My dad is a uh, 25-year yeah. um, Air Force. Oh, okay. So when he retired, it was like this big a, yeah, to-do. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge deal. No, <laughs> mm-hmm. and my contract just ran, runs out. And then and you, you just know, didn't renew. Yeah, you become a civilian. Okay. Yeah. And why didn't, why didn't you decide to renew your contract? Well, I think, you know, I was in a a different part of my life where Mm -hmm. I was starting a family and, um, you know, I I learned a little bit more about what it meant to be in the army. I think, um, you know, war is not something that I really wanted to partake in anymore because I didn't think often that we were engaging in, in, you know, in things that were always for the protection of democracy or for the greater good of society. So how long after you didn't renew your contract, mm-hmm. how, what's the time span in between where you decided, okay, I'm done with the military and now it's really time to really think about how I can impact community mm-hmm. and if that impact needs to be me running for office? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, a lot of it was me just trying to find a, a living, you know, me going and making sure that I had an education, that I had a good job to fall back and support my family with. And then just in the process of, of doing that, I kind of learned, you know, what the obstacles were in, in our communities. Um, the fact that we have to pay so much for rent, the fact that I see, you know, people out on the streets and, and you know, what we can be subject to if we're not successful in those mm-hmm. things. And, you know, uh, one of my first political experiences was, you know, doing something as simple as making food for the homeless in the community. That was how I started engaging in the political process is realizing that there is an issue and that we as regular citizens can contribute to changing. And that's this is really what that run is all about. That's interesting because I volunteer all the time mm. and I spe- specifically with youth. Okay. Um, that's just kind of my personal passion mm-hmm. to make sure in my community there is a preschool to prison pipeline and yeah. it's my goal to try to impact that however I can. And so I volunteer a lot. I speak at schools a lot. Um, I, I spend time with homeless that that's not my passion as much as young people, but it's a very humbling experience. And I think it's something that everyone needs to do. Absolutely. But with all the volunteering and, and service that I do, it's never dawned on me to run for office. (laughs) So what was that trigger for you? So the trigger is realizing that, you know, volunteering and charity is, is not enough. What we need to do is to actually build power and take the power away from from really the the, the entities and the um, forces that are really determining the way that, that we our society is run our city is run you know right now long beach um, has a system that serves the interests of the wealthy alone um, you know, the poor the working class they're they're excluded from all of these conversations and often the poor and the working class are composed of brown and black people, and it ultimately becomes a racist system. So let's dive into this because you're running on as a communist. I am. Yes. And I Googled and I searched high and low, and I could only find eight people who've actually run and been successful on the communist ticket. And then you were in the military. So obviously, since I'm come from a family of, of military people, the word communist and military do not go <laughs> hand in hand yeah. at all. Yeah. So how did you decide that was the ticket that you wanted to run on? Well, I think uh, I, I would, you know, as I stated earlier, my experience with war and with deployment was, was really one of my uh, you know, milestones in terms of my political development because I understood uh, as I was trying to learn about what I was doing out there, that, hey, you know what, why, you know, what is our purpose? And it was what I came to the conclusion was, is that 
ultimately we're only serving the interests of of the rich and the wealthy on a global scale and that that same process takes place here locally in long beach and so you know running and learning about imperialism learning about the plunder of third world countries both in latin america and africa and asia i learned that these systems of racism that impact us here locally are also operating at in the world mm-hmm. in every every corner of the world and communism uh, the history of socialism has always been shown to be a very progressive force in terms of battling racism in terms of battling the exploitation of working people and so just learning that history and learning that a lot of the history that they teach us in, in schools is, is wrong in propaganda. Okay, so let's get into some of that, because obviously I just was like, let's get the basic definition of communism. So it says, um, political and economic doctrine that aims to replace private property and a profit-based economy with public ownership and a communal control of at least the major means of production and the natural resources of a society. Is is that what you believe? Yeah, I think uh, an easy way to kind of digest that and process it is it's reorganizing the economy to serve the greater good of society. And, you know, we see that here, bring it back to Long Beach, right? The way that our city government works is that if the Long Beach real estate developers don't get profit from it, it's not going to happen. If, the, you know, if they're not backing a candidate, those candidates are not going to win. That's the process that we have here. Now, the only way to combat that is to advocate for a mass program that serves the interests of the greater amount of people which are working class, which have needs here in Long Beach that are not being met. So socialism for Long Beach is what will get us out of the current predicaments that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. People love Bernie Sanders. Why not just say, I'm going to run as a socialist? Well, I think his most uh, recent run kind of shows the limits of of that kind of identification. I think Bernie is great. I think he he advocates for a lot of the same things. And I I feel feel like there'd be very little that we'd actually disagree with in terms of material programs and material policy solutions. But I think it's important to understand what our final goal is by saying that we're communists is that we want the eradication of capitalism as it currently is. Capitalism as it currently is is not reformable. We can't make it more democratic. Capitalism will always lead to the dictatorship of a few amount of powerful and rich people. Communism has this bad rap of not being democratic, but communism is really the only true form of democracy because right now we're not living in a democracy. So is that democracy where you're not having your, your, your needs met, where you're not able to be heard by your representatives, um, and that city council elections and policies are won by who has the most money? That That's not democracy. And I think it's common knowledge that we all know that 70% of the wealth is in this country is controlled by 1%. And we see Jeff Bezos flying into space. Meanwhile, a lot of the workers at Amazon are barely getting by. So I think that the average person understands that. But like you said, communism does have a bad rap. You you retweeted something that said, yes, you should read Mao, um, Lenin, Stalin, Marx, and Engels. Stalin, Lenin, Mao, horrible people. <laughs> so when you retweet that, what are you saying? Um, you know, Mao and Stalin, uh, these are figures that we look to in terms of their con- contributions to the, um, the building of socialism across the world. Um, they're not particularly relevant for this current state. And I think that's what that retweet is about. This right now in America, it's much more, um, it's much more important to focus on the actual figures in America that have advocated for socialism. If you look at the history of socialism here in America, uh, whether it be MLK, whether it be uh, Claudia Jones, whether it be you know, Gus Hall, Angela mm-hmm. Davis, those people have all looked 
towards the contributions of socialist countries that were led by the USSR and Stalin or um, you know uh, Mao. Um, those are all figures that they admired. Uh, Fred Hampton, who recently had a biopic right about him, he was a huge fan of Mao, right? He was. And so those are, I think we have to critically think about what we're being told in our schools about these figures and, and, and take it and, and be honest about where we are as a country. The, the U.S. and its leaders have had a horrible, horrible people as well. Mm -hmm. And it's about understanding, you know, the history and the context in which those, those situations occurred. I like your example because, like I said, Fred, Fred Hampton is one of my personal idols um, just through and through. I've spent an enormous amount of time studying him. And one of the things that I really liked about him was, you know, he started advocating for his people, as he should. But then he almost immediately realized, let me go to poor white people as well because and let me help them understand that. Y'all ain't no different than us <laughs> because at the end of the day, you're you're not relevant to this society because you're poor. So how do you how do you incorporate that? And then all, at the same time, know that Mao, for example, had, you know, he promoted a system where the basically peasants killed the landlords. Like, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think. Uh, you know, locally, it's about not even locally, but I think even you know, in this nation and internationally, we have a system where to be black, to be brown um, is to be poor. But that doesn't mean um, that white people don't also suffer from mm -hmm. the same issues. And I think what we are trying to do specifically with the program of socialism is address those material needs that almost every ethnic group, every identity group, women, um, you know, trans people, all these people and, and groups suffer from material needs. They need to they need to eat. They need to be able to have a, a housing. They need to be able to have medical care. They need to be able to have transportation. If we can address those issues, we under we at the very base level are able to address uh, a lot of the issues that that impact our communities that mm -hmm. are suffering under this current system. So it's about it's about that. Let's get at the material needs of the people. Let's solve it. And then, you know, I think a lot of these social issues that kind of expand and, and, and just have, you know, there's a lot of war and conflict mm -hmm. between these groups. Those start to smooth over and at least we can build towards something bigger and greater than what we have. Social media always seems to bounce up and bite people, though. And I can't, I, I believe it's Wang Fuyu. He's a former senior political advisor for Southwest China. And he was sentenced on Monday to death um, with a two-year reprieve for taking bribes worth over 434 million which U.S. dollars, basically, right? Or 68 million U.S. dollars. Um, is death a, a, an appropriate, even though, the, is that an appropriate sentencing for that kind of crime? Well, you know, I think that's an interesting, we have these conversations um, you know, about the death penalty here right. in America. Um, I, I believe, for instance, we had the truck driver uh, recently. I in forget. Colorado. In Colorado. The brakes went out. The brakes mm -hmm. went out. He sentenced to life. 104 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's basically a life sentence, mm -hmm. right? He was sentenced to die in prison. He was sentenced mm -hmm. to death, mm -hmm. right? For a mistake that wasn't his. Mm -hmm. A mistake that he made because he had to feed his family because he had to work, right? Mm -hmm. What I think that retweet kind of shows is there's a difference in the system. In China... The rich have a duty to the people. And if you abuse that duty, if you are deceitful of the people, then there are consequences. Now, we can have you know, larger ideological debates about whether the state should take away anybody's life, right? But I think the, the, I, the fundamental premise of that idea and why I retweeted is that there's a, there's a difference. Can you imagine Bezos 
being charged with the crimes that he commits daily against his Amazon employees? Mm -hmm. No. I mean, he gets away with just countless murder. I mean, I think you, you can make the argument, and I would, that Jeff Bezos is a murderer, mm -hmm. that, that many people like Bezos that operate here, um, their policies and their, their greed and their um, exploitation of the people lead to the deaths of millions. By, and, by, by what means? Through economic exploitation, depriving people of their work. The, the Amazon, all of these different large corporations would not be wealthy. They would not have no value in what they produce without the workers who, put the, who actually put the value into the products. Mm -hmm. And to deny them of basic living wages, I think, is tantamount to, to murder. I think so. You, we're going to talk about a few tweets. Um, you also retweeted Long Beach Communist Party. Do you love the people? Do you want to work with and struggle alongside the masses, flaws and all? If the answer is yes, join the Communist Party USA. If the answer is no, perhaps the Democrats or Republicans are more in line with your politics. This specific tweet when it says, you know, do you want to struggle alongside the masses? What it says to me. So when in high school, for example, we all had those group projects. I hated group projects. And the reason why I hated group projects is because there was always, if there was a group of five, there was always three of us that did all the work. And then there was two people that benefited from that. And I think that's the mindset that a lot of people will have. If I'm, if I'm out here doing the work, if I'm hustling, if I'm trying to educate myself, if I'm trying to be an entrepreneur, build generational wealth from my family, and then I have these people who are not doing that, but they're benefiting from my hard work. That's what the Communist Party is to me. So can you explain what my perception is versus what you're trying to do? Yeah, so I don't, I think that's that's one, what I would characterize as a misnomer mm -hmm. in terms of how to characterize our politics. Because I think socialism has always gotten this rap that everything is just free, right? I don't think that that's what socialists stand for. Oh, I know that that's not what we stand for. And I don't, that that's not what our policies propose. What our policies propose is that your work, what you contribute to society, should come back to you entirely. It shouldn't go back to real estate developers, right? You shouldn't go line the pockets of big business. Now, that's not to say that everybody's going to earn the same amount, that everybody's going to have the same benefits. If you, uh, I think a, a very modern example is current day China. China surpassed the U.S. in terms of wealth. Right, they have billionaires. They have millionaires. They're people that live very lavish lifestyles. Mm -hmm. But they also have a system that guarantees housing for people. They have a healthcare system that supersedes the U.S. I mean, just look at the COVID response. Mm -hmm. um, very few people have died from COVID in China. I'm going to pause and interject here for just a second because I understand a lot of people might have a negative thought when they hear Stephen Estrada say that China had lower death numbers than we did here in the United States. And a lot of people believe that China skewed their numbers and intentionally reported lower deaths than what they actually have. I fully believe that's possible, but I do think how China handled their COVID response was leaps and bounds better than how we handled it here in the United States. People will disagree because China forced people into a lockdown. Meanwhile, we forced fast food workers, landscapers, and grocery store workers to work. And yes, I'm saying force because these are people who were already living paycheck to paycheck. So when their employer told them they had to work, that meant they had to work. Do I think the way China forced customers who wanted to buy cough medicine to register in a database with their ID and name, the way they forced mandatory testing, does that feel a little like a dictatorship? Sure. 
Do I think requiring their citizens to have a digital tracker to see if they've been in an area with a confirmed positive test? And if so, prevent them from traveling? Do I think that's evasive? I could see why you would feel that way, but I do think all of the above should have been implemented here in the States. But if with all of that, we decided we're going to do things our own way, that's fantastic. But if we truly believe fast food workers, grocery workers, landscapers, all of the above were essential workers that needed to be out while the rest of us stayed in our home safe, if you think that's true, then at bare minimum, I believe that those people should have received the same, if not better treatment than banks that mishandled their money. Do I think that I can live in a country where a black doctor by the name of Susan Moore foretold her death from COVID on social media because she wanted the world to know that her complaints of pain were overlooked because she was a black woman? This is a well-documented problem within medical facilities here in our country. And then to add insult to injury, when given the opportunity to speak about her death, the president and CEO of Indiana University Hospital blamed her for her death. Because given her medical experience, well, she was just a little too intimidating. And what kind of justice did Susan Moore and her family receive? As of today, just a call for an intense review of policies at Indiana University Hospital. Bottom line, I personally believe that China had a much better response to COVID than we did. Are they the type of government that would skew their numbers? Absolutely. But I live in a glass house that is America, so I am choosing not to throw stones. Being black in this country where I see that we are really on this hamster wheel of crying, marching, and praying, and begging for change, I can tell you that I 100% believe that this system is broken beyond repair. Do I think that communism or socialism is the fix? I absolutely cannot say that. But what I do know is any kind of change is going to start on the local level. So I had to ask Stephen Estrada. If he was to win his bid for city council in District 1, what would be something that he would implement that could promote change? This was his response. Well, I think uh, the issue of poverty in particular in my district is one that we need to, um, we need to address. And there are different policy proposals that we have uh, to, to address it. Um, in particular, we have uh, an effort to uh, make the public transportation free for all citizens in Long Beach. Uh, we want to uh, fund and move money in the budget towards the development of leadership, youth leadership programs, mentor leadership programs, uh, job training programs, mental health uh, treatment facilities, um, and housing in particular. Those are all, that's all to say, it's to address the issue of poverty where one out of four people in my district are in poverty. Their neighborhoods, uh, I'll take the Washington neighborhood for instance, 85% of those people are in poverty. Mm -hmm. That leads to health outcomes, the disparate health outcomes that leads to the issue of police brutality, um, that leads to the issue of uh, um, uh, you know, lack of access to medical care, that leads to all different just horrible things in our city. Mm -hmm. And the root of it is that people are poor, that people don't have good wages, they don't have strong union jobs. That's how we address it, unionization, uh, enriching our communities to make sure that we have wealth in our homes. Right. That's how we create change. Um, and, and that's really what I, I don't think that's a radical, that's a particularly radical thing to say that people should get paid to do what they're doing and, and be able to live a, a reasonable, a comfortable life doing it. So do you think you can retweet these tweets that mention Mao and, and Stalin, which have a I mean, however you look at it, Americans are going to look at them as hor horrible people. Do you do you think you can retweet them and people can overlook some of the evils that they've done 
and look at their basic principles, it seems like a very difficult task. It, it is a difficult task, but I think it's a task that we have to um, take on because, I, I mean, you know, George Washington was a slave owner. Uh, Abraham Lincoln <laughs> right. was um, somebody who said that he would preserve the union if without... If he didn't have to free the slaves. Exactly. I tell people that all the time. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's, I think Americans are, are able to understand the context. Now, are they there now? No, I don't, I don't think so. But I think if we don't undertake that process, um, it's not going to happen. And, and Mao and Stalin, you know, are, are not parts of my program. I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I, I, my, my policies are not particularly influenced by those figures. My policies are, are much more influenced by what Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and Fred Hampton did with the Black Panthers. That was really the, um, you know, the, the basis of my mutual aid yeah. program. That, they started WIC. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So those are the figures that I look towards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll throw in some Mao and Stalin quotes, but that's that's not central to to this situation. And, and that's really what we're trying to focus on is material needs for the people here now. I have to say one of the things that really stood out to me in this interview again was just this is a normal guy that is passionate about his community, that is passionate about the struggles that he sees in his community and he seems to just really want to help. He's very approachable. He says he wants to be an open book and trust me when I tell you he is not shy about any questions you would have for him. I think my biggest takeaway from this interview was how important it is to just sit down and have a conversation with someone and be willing to listen. If you have questions, like I said, he's open to answering them and you can reach him on Twitter at Steven Estrada D1. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-E-S-T-R-A-D-A or check out his website at stevenestrada.org. And don't forget, this podcast is really about giving a voice to the community. So if there's something you think that is important, please feel free to email me here at the post. My email address is Jackie at lbpost.com. You can also DM me on Instagram or Twitter. That Instagram handle and Twitter handle is Jackie Ray TV, or you can call our hotline. That number is 562-379-6736. Again, that number is 562-379-6736. Once again, I'm Jackie Ray. And don't forget, if you have to speak a word, make sure it's a good one. Thank you.